From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The latest UN climate summit kicks off in Poland, overshadowed by the devastation of Super Typhoon Haiyan in the Philippines. What my country is going through as a result of this extreme climate event is madness. The climate crisis is madness. Mr. President, we can stop this madness right here in Warsaw. The Filipino delegate vows to fast until there's meaningful action on climate change. Also, how the hotter planet is making storms like Haiyan worse. The environment in which these storms are occurring is changed because of climate change. The sea temperatures are higher and the storm surge, because of the higher sea level, is also greater than it otherwise would be. We'll have that and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Funding for Living on Earth comes from Stonyfield Farm, makers of organic yogurt, smoothies, and more. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Boston, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Typhoon Haiyan was one of the most powerful and destructive storms ever recorded, with sustained winds of 195 miles per hour and gusts up to 230. And in terms of human impact, it may well be the worst. It scythed a trail of destruction across the Philippines and onto Vietnam and China, leaving thousands dead and whole towns flattened. The super typhoon struck just before this year's UN climate summit began in Warsaw, Poland, and it underscored the increased violence of storms in a warmer world and the need for urgent action. As the conference of the climate convention parties got underway, there were many expressions of sympathy for the Philippines and gratitude from the Philippines delegate himself, Nadaref Yeb Sano. And it would be remiss of my delegation not to thank everyone who have expressed solidarity to the Philippines in this difficult time. Yebsano is also the climate commissioner of the former American territory, and he gave a powerful and moving speech, pointing out how little had been achieved by previous climate summits. He noted that promises made four years ago by rich nations to provide billions to help poor countries deal with climate change have yet to be kept, and now the disadvantaged are paying the price of inaction. Mr. President, in Doha, we asked, if not us, then who? If not now, then when? If not here, then where? But here, in Warsaw, we may very well ask these same forthright questions. What my country is going through as a result of this extreme climate event is madness. The climate crisis is madness. Mr. President, we can stop this madness right here in Warsaw. It is the 19th COP. But we might as well stop counting because my country refuses to accept that a COP30 or a COP40 will be needed to solve climate change. And because it seems that despite the significant gains we have had since the UNFCCC was born, 20 years hence we continue to fall short in fulfilling the ultimate objective of the convention. Now we find ourselves in a situation where we have to ask ourselves, can we ever attain the ultimate objective of the convention, which is to prevent dangerous anthropogenic interference with the climate system? By failing to meet the objective of the convention, we may have ratified our own doom. During his 17-minute speech, Mr. Sano ignored frequent gongs telling him he was over his allotted three minutes and struck a personal note. Super Typhoon Haiyan made landfall in his family's hometown, and he learned that though there was no food to be had, his brother was working 
gathering up the dead bodies. In solidarity with my countrymen who are struggling to find food back home and with my brother who has not had food for the last three days, with all due respect, Mr. President, and I mean no disrespect for your kind hospitality, I will now commence a voluntary fasting for the climate. This means I will voluntarily refrain from eating food during this COP until a meaningful outcome is in sight, until concrete pledges have been made to ensure mobilization of resources for the Green Climate Fund. We cannot afford a fourth COP with an empty GCF. Yepsano added that climate summits have been called many things, including a farce, an annual carbon-intensive gathering of useless frequent flyers, and the project to save the planet, which it could be. We can fix this. We can stop this madness right now, right here, in the middle of this football field, and stop moving the goalposts. Now, can humanity rise to this occasion? Mr. President, I still believe we can. Thank you, Mr. President. Thank you. Mr. Sano's complete speech is at our website, LOE.org. Climate justice advocates took Yebsano's hunger strike as a call to action. In Warsaw and around the world, many are joining him, including Wael Maiden, the executive director of the Climate Action Network, which represents NGOs in 90 countries. He says Mr. Sano's emotional appeal was no surprise. We expected a very emotional speech, and it moved everyone there. What was not expected here is the reaction of the government. So after... Philippine speech, we started hearing uh, the other country groupings talking, and unfortunately, we heard the same kind of rhetoric uh, as if nothing has happened, as if the tragedy in the Philippines has no meaning. Now, Mr. Sano announced that he was beginning a hunger strike until meaningful climate action uh, was taken at the conference of the parties there in Warsaw, and uh, you've decided to join him. Why? Well, because we are at this critical time of history, we really need to do something different than what we're doing. We usually come here, try to negotiate, try to engage in uh, climate policy text, trying to move commas, trying to move words. But the problem is not here. The problem is the political will to solve climate change. It has to happen in the capitals first. We need to create new political will. And uh, to do that, we need to show that we're serious. We need to take bold actions. It's really unbelievable and it's really madness, as Sanu says it, when countries just a day after Sanu's speech, a couple of days after the tragedy in the Philippines, they start to reduce their climate ambitions, such as Australia actually repealing its climate legislation and cancelling funds uh, that are earmarked for renewable energy. It's unbelievable. And then you have Canada afterwards actually standing up and congratulating Australia for this move. This is insane. This is an insult to the Philippine people. This is actually telling the Philippine people that, yeah, we're fine what's happening and expect more. They're sending them a death note. So how many folks have joined this hunger strike that you know about? Well, you have students uh, in the U.S., you have faith communities from around the world, you have NGOs, even some of the party delegates are contemplating joining this hunger strike. Uh, it's not easy because it's, uh, we're here working all day in negotiations, uh, running around. Uh, we wake up at 6, return after 1 a.m., we sleep 3-4 hours every night, but still people are going on a hunger strike. So there are now, in the hundreds, I would say, 
Uh, it's hard to count because initiatives are coming from around the world. We're trying to connect people together, but it, it's not easy. So uh, tell me, how are you doing physically? I'm feeling energized. I, I have to say I'm a bit surprised. I didn't expect it to be that easy. And I think it's because two reasons. One, it's out of belief. It's from the heart. So I'm not feeling any stress. And of course, the fact that we are so busy during the day trying to talk to delegates, trying to coordinate civil society, uh, the time flies. And I have to say, I'm feeling very fine, very energized and very motivated and very determined. What are your demands? What are the demands of the hunger strikers? There isn't one specific demand. Again, because it's not coordinated in any way and saying this is what we all want. For us, we want political movement. Uh, we want to see progress in the negotiations. We want to see respect to the vulnerable people like the people of the Philippines, the islands, Africa, and all the very poor developing countries. We know that it's not going to be solved here in the COP, the climate problem. You know it's a long-term process, but we need to see some seriousness in it. The numbers that the countries put on the table to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions responsible for climate change are really pathetic. By 2050, we need to completely be free from fossil fuels, oil, coal, natural gas, if we want to save the species and human civilization from climate change impacts. This requires cooperation not only of civil society, it needs to become a general public demand. It has to become a top priority of the general public. So the church, the youth, the development movement, all kinds of movements that are involved in health, human rights, development, poverty, they need to also understand that if we lose the climate fight, all other fights are lost. While Maiden is the director of Climate Action Network. Thank you so much. Thank you. So what is the risk that we will see more superstorms in the years ahead as the planet warms and sea levels rise? To get some answers, we called Kevin Trenberth. He's a senior scientist at the U.S. National Center for Atmospheric Research to ask him what we can learn from super typhoon Haiyan. Certainly this was a very strong and very big storm, very intense storm, and the unusual part of it perhaps is that it made landfall. It barreled right through the Philippines, whereas uh, we've had certainly as big storms before, but not uh, where they made landfall. And by the way, the difference between a hurricane and a typhoon is... Well, a hurricane uh, is the same animal in the Atlantic. Uh, the typhoon is in the Pacific Northwest, and another name for them is cyclone, for instance, in the Bay of Bengal. Now, here in the Atlantic uh, this year, it was relatively calm hurricane season, but then this colossal typhoon crops up in the, in the Pacific. What's the relationship, if any, there? Well, there has been other activity in the Pacific as well. There was a very big uh, typhoon that uh, just brushed by Japan a short time ago. And, of course, a lot of activity over in the Bay of Bengal that uh, went into India. And so there has been activity elsewhere. And frequently when that happens, it does have a suppressing effect on the Atlantic. In other words, there's a little bit of a competition around the tropics as to where the activity is going to occur. Now, this area near the Philippines is no stranger to typhoons. Why is that? The Pacific Northwest region is where some of the warmest water occurs in the world. And to the east of the Philippines, the sea temperatures 
have been running as high as about 85 degrees uh, Fahrenheit. And this is about as warm as the ocean gets. If it gets very much above there, it quickly gets knocked down again because of evaporative cooling with the storms that are attracted to that region. And in fact, sea level is higher over there. In the last 20 years, sea level has been going up in that region faster than anywhere else in the world. You might say it's really the hotspot of the world. So you're saying that the ocean near the Philippines is actually experiencing a higher rate of sea level rise. Why is that? There is a change in the weather patterns related to the phenomenon that is widely known as La Nina, where there is cooler sea surface temperatures in the central and eastern Pacific, but warmer than average uh, sea surface temperatures in the west. The trade winds are stronger. They've gotten stronger over the last uh, 20 years compared with, say, the previous 30 or 40 years. And the sea level has piled up over there so that sea level has gone up uh, in the region just east of the Philippines by about 20 centimeters, uh, about eight inches over the last 20 years or so, whereas globally sea level has gone up about two and a half inches. Wow, so that amount of sea level rise must make storm events like this typhoon even more severe then. This is certainly true when it comes to the storm surge. So sea level rise combined with uh, perhaps a more intense storm uh, and heavier rains contributes to damage that uh, previously would not have uh, occurred. Now help me understand what's going on here. Of course, we can't attribute any single event to climate change, but what, in your view, is the relationship here between this dramatic storm and a warming planet? Well, the environment in which these storms are occurring is changed because of climate change. The sea temperatures are higher and the atmosphere above the ocean is warmer and moister as a result. And these storms reach out and grab that moisture, bring it into the storm. And as a result, the storm tends to be more intense. There are heavier rainfalls. There's greater flooding associated with that. And uh, the storm surge, because of the highest sea level, is also greater than it otherwise would be. Kevin Tremberth, what do you expect in terms of typhoons and cyclones and hurricanes going into the future? The understanding that we have at the moment is that we, we do expect uh, bigger, uh, more intense storms. However, there may well be fewer such storms overall and one of the reasons is that if you have one really big storm, it churns up the ocean, it takes heat out of the ocean, uh, so the ocean gets cooled off, and it creates a less favorable environment for the next storm. And so one of these big storms can perhaps replace, uh, you know, three or four uh, somewhat smaller storms. And so we may end up with uh, fewer storms, but when they do occur, look out. Kevin Trenberth is a distinguished senior scientist at the U.S. National Center for Atmospheric Research in Boulder, Colorado. Thanks so much for taking this time. Thank you very much, Steve. Coming up, coal opponents with money score in a key county election in Washington state. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Local elections can have national implications, and nowhere is that more obvious this year than the results of a seemingly obscure election in Washington State's Whatcom County. 
The focus is on the Whatcom County Council because it will eventually decide whether or not to approve the largest of the proposed coal export terminals on the West Coast. Reporter Ashley Ahern of the public media collaborative EarthFix followed this election closely, and she's on the line now. Welcome back to Living on Earth. Hey, Steve. So some press accounts say that race in Whatcom County was a race between those who are in favor of developing a massive coal export terminal there and those who are against it. Uh, Was it that clear? You know, I think the funny thing about county council members and county council elections is the county council is a semi-judicial body that's supposed to be nonpartisan and will ultimately make decisions about the permits for the docks for the Gateway Pacific Terminal. And as you know, that's the largest proposed coal export terminal on the West Coast. And so the interesting thing to watch in this campaign season was that the candidates were all talking about the coal terminal, but they weren't allowed to come out directly and say how they would vote on it because they didn't want to sort of reveal their hand as semi-judicial members of this council. Eventually, So you had this interesting thing happening where there was code for how they might vote. People would say things like, well, I'm pro-development or pro-jobs or I'm pro-environment, pro-conservation. And, and you kind of had to just interpret that as how they might vote on the terminal. That being said, the money followed a very clear line. There were four candidates who were backed by the Republican Party and a PAC that was funded by coal company money and terminal company money. And then there were four candidates that were ha- backed heavily by the Whatcom County Democrats and the Washington conservation voters. So the money, I think, shows a pretty clear picture when it comes right down to it. Yeah, let's talk about the money that's involved here. County council is typically not a race that gets a a lot of attention or money for that matter, but I gather that's not what happened there. How much was spent on this race overall? Well, to give you some context, the average county council member will spend twenty to 30000 to get elected, and there was close to a million dollars spent on this campaign total for four candidates. So we're looking at $250,000, $200,000 per candidate in fundraising and spending to win this election. And it was pretty interesting to see where the money was coming from. And perhaps most interestingly, in, the, in terms of campaign finances, more money came in from the environmental side than from the coal company or uh, fossil fuel industry side. But when you add it all up, Ashley, this election was about coal? You know, I think that depends on who you ask. For Washington conservation voters, this was very clearly an election that was about coal. And they have said this was one of the most important elections for them in the state. And uh, some have said nationally for any environmental group that is watching climate change issues on the ballot was this Whatcom County Council election. And so when I talked to Brendan Chehovic, he is the executive director of Washington conservation voters. He made it pretty clear that, yes, this was indeed about the coal export issue and climate change largely. Look, we have four candidates who just lost their jobs because they supported coal exports in the Northwest. So, you know, if I was an elected official anywhere in the state, I would pick my head up and and notice that. But then on the more conservative pro-development side, you have this PAC known as Save Whatcom, which is funded by coal companies and terminal companies. Uh, Majority funding is coming from those groups. And I talked to Chris Halterman. She's the head of the PAC. And she said coal actually wasn't the biggest issue. And the environmentalists used it to sort of steal the election. The money bought the election and painted a picture of the candidates that we supported as being that they would vote for coal when what they would do was they would stand up and fight for the residents and the community and the property owners of Whatcom County. Okay, Ashley. So did money buy this election? Short answer, yes. 
The candidates that had more money spent on them won the election. Those were the four environmental candidates. Long answer, yes, but there was a huge grassroots and local effort that helped those candidates win the election. The environmental side definitely outdid the pro-coal side or pro-development side in this campaign in terms of just sheer numbers of doors knocked on, phone calls made. The Whatcom County Democrats and Washington Conservation voters made more than 47,000 phone calls and knocked on twenty more than 26,000 doors. That's a lot of doors in a pretty rural and small county. So when does this council actually weigh in on the coal terminal? I mean, that's the funniest thing in all of this, I think, is, you know, the environmental impact, the environmental review for the Gateway Pacific Terminal has begun, but it could take more than two years for that to be completed. So these county council members may not be voting on these permits for the docks at Cherry Point where the terminal would be built for more than two years. Will they still be in office or is there another election to go? Well, if there is, you can be sure it'll be getting just as much attention as this one did. That's Ashley Ahern of the public media collaborative EarthFix. And by the way, we must congratulate Ashley on recently winning a AAAS Cavalry Journalism Certificate of Merit for her series on coal dust. Well, coal use in the U.S. continues to decline, mostly thanks to the huge expansion in fracking for natural gas. The fracking boom has also helped fuel a renaissance of chemical plants in Louisiana and could bring such industry to shale gas country. And that means jobs, lots of jobs, at these chemical plants. But in this report from the Gulf Coast, Reed Frazier of the public radio project The Allegheny Front finds the newly abundant jobs also come with abundant risks. On a rainy morning, Mike Eads drives around Geismer, Louisiana. It's about halfway between New Orleans and Baton Rouge. And it's in the middle of Louisiana's so-called chemical corridor. It's a 60-mile stretch along the Mississippi River, where roughly a quarter of the country's petrochemicals are made. Eads points out several large construction projects at hulking industrial plants. Eads is director of the local development corporation. His job is to bring new business to the area. He pulls over. Workers in the distance are preparing a site for construction. Uh, This is about a 225-acre site. The site will house two plants for Methanex. Methanex is the world's largest producer of methanol, a basic chemical made from natural gas. The total price for the project is over a billion dollars, but the price itself isn't the most eye-popping thing about these new plants. They are just actually dismantling another plant in Chile and moving it uh, to this area. Eads has been in this business for 30 years, and he's worked in seven different states. In the last year alone, he's seen about $3.6 billion in new announced projects here. And that's by far the most uh, that I've ever experienced in my career (laughs) in any location. These projects are all happening because of the fracking boom. It's made natural gas cheap and abundant, and chemical companies use natural gas as a raw material. While the boom comes at a good time for the region's economy, people here also know these plants can be dangerous. This fact was driven home one morning in June. Antoinette West was lying on her couch in Geismer. The house shook, and I got up, and I went to the door. She thought it was an explosion at a nearby vinyl plant, which caught fire last year, but she couldn't see any smoke when she looked in that direction. Then she looked behind her trailer. All I seen was black smoke. A massive explosion and fire at a chemical plant rocks the Geismer... It was the Williams Olefins plant in Geismer. One worker died in the explosion, and another died the next day from his injuries. Over a hundred were hurt. The plant makes ethylene and propylene, 
It's the same kind of plant, an ethane cracker, that Shell Chemical has proposed building in western Pennsylvania. Ethylene and propylene are the building blocks of plastic and other chemicals. They're also highly flammable. The company said a rupture in a heat exchanger caused the explosion. For West, it was another moment where she wished she didn't have to live so close to a chemical plant. If I could move today, I would move. I'm not going to lie. I would get out of here. But this is the only place she can afford. The company reported releasing 31,000 pounds of chemicals in the blast, mostly propylene, which can burn the eyes and skin. But the Louisiana Department of Environmental Quality, the state regulator, said that its air monitoring taken that day showed no unsafe levels of chemicals in the air near the plant. LaRoyal Ely lives two doors down from West. He's an electrician who's worked in many of the plants in the area. As his family gets ready for dinner one night, he says he isn't worried about air pollution from the explosion. I didn't think nothing really seriously would happen to me over here. I was worried about the people in there. But his wife, Elaine Claiborne, says she was concerned about what came out of the plant during the blast. It might not affect us right now, but later on in the year. Yeah, I got concern. Ely says worries about pollution or explosions are just something you have to live with if you live near a chemical plant. He says, overall, it's worth it. It's good to have them, but it is, it's a risk in everything. Those risks are why the industry needs stronger oversight, says Kim Nybarger. He's with the United Steelworkers, which represents thousands of chemical and refinery workers. Take a coffee can and fill it about half full of gas and put it on your barbecue. That's not much different than what's going on in these facilities. It's a dangerous, dangerous operation. The Obama administration is paying closer attention to the issue of chemical safety. In August, the president signed an executive order mandating greater communication and enforcement among federal agencies who oversee chemical plants. He was responding to a fertilizer explosion in April in West Texas. That blast killed 15. Despite high-profile explosions, the chemical manufacturing industry is comparatively safe, according to records from the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. The industry has a fatality rate roughly half the national average for other industries, and it's much, much safer than jobs like mining, forestry, or farming. But Nyberger says those numbers can be deceiving. No, I think the industry is more dangerous than it seems. That's because those injury and fatality rates don't always include contractors working at the plant. When those are accounted for, he says, those injury numbers are actually higher. But an industry trade group says even if outside workers are taken into account, the chemical sector is relatively safe, and it's getting safer. The American Chemistry Council says its members have had a precipitous drop in accidents, 58% since the 1990s. Scott Jensen of the Chemistry Council says those numbers include contractors. While I think in the public's mind that there is a, a renewed focus on safety, I think for our industry, um, that focus has always been there. Concern over safety issues aren't likely to stop the chemical expansion anytime soon. In Geismer, the plants keep growing to take advantage of cheap shale gas. And they're attracting workers like Joshua Gray. Gray moved here from Baton Rouge to work as a carpenter. On a recent afternoon, he stopped in a parking lot on his way out of a laundromat. The economic part of it is outstanding. The money's here. There's no reason to leave here. I mean, you're going to make some money right here. For the next 10 years, it's, it's, it's like 
It's equivalent to a gold rush. Gray was with Josh Gibbons, an 18-year-old from Baton Rouge. Last week, Gibbons was delivering pizzas. Now he's working as a carpenter's apprentice. Learn, learn. I'm there for learning, really. I want to. I'm in there for the money, but I mean, it's not that great. It's not that great at the moment. What's the money like? Now? Fourteen an hour starting right now, but it's the first time in a plant. Years old. But he beat it, you know. He yeah, was yeah, delivering pizzas a week, a week ago. Now he's making checks a week. Hundred and forty dollars a day. The irony of all this for Joshua Gray is he's not really in favor of the expansion. He thinks the plants are releasing too much air pollution and that they're bad for the environment. I know I, I, I don't really favor none of it. It's, you know, it's, it's not good for the environment. It's, it's really terrible. But, you know, when you need a job, you're going to do what you got to do to make money. And Gray says he'll be here as long as the money keeps coming. That's Reed Frazier reporting from Geismer, Louisiana. Reed's story comes to us from the series The Coming Chemical Boom, produced by the Allegheny Front in Pittsburgh, with support from the Fund for Investigative Journalism. Time now to check in with Peter Dykstra, publisher of The Daily Climate and Environmental Health News, for a few stories from beyond the headlines. He and his team comb the web for curious tales of environmental change from around the planet and often find little-noticed topics that bear watching as they emerge over time. Peter Dykstra joins us now on the line from Conyers, Georgia. Hi there, Peter. Hello, Steve. Got a question for you to start. Are you a a Marx Brothers movie fan? Well, hey, you know, anytime I need a handy insult, nobody like Groucho Marx to quote, uh, remember that line? Uh, I never forget a face, but in your case, I'll make an exception. That line works very well on radio, doesn't it? (laughs) Well, the reason I bring it up is that the Marx Brothers' first movie, this was back in the late 1920s, was called The Coconuts, and it was a satire, everything they did was a satire, of all of the real estate swindles that were going on in Florida at the time. What would happen was that uh, people up north would see these beautiful magazine ads about paradise resorts for sale in Florida, They'd buy inside unseen, and then they'd find out that the Paradise uh, retirement home they bought turned out to be useless swampland, and um, it, it, it was a constant swindle. The Tampa Bay Times this past week reported what could be a 20th century version of that kind of swindle. It focuses on America's biggest home building firm, D.R. Horton, and the Times reported that they sold 2,500 homes in the Tampa Bay area over the last few years and they quietly kept the mineral rights for what's under those homes to themselves. Whether you find natural gas through fracking in the future, whether you find oil, maybe even diamonds, anything that would be found in the future goes back to the home builder rather than the home owner. And so you had 2,500 homeowners, according to the Tampa Bay Times, that had pre-qualified for an alleged swindle. So now what would Groucho and his brother do? They'd probably make a movie and make some wisecracks and insults about land developers. (laughs) Okay, so let's see. There's another story from your neck of the woods about, well, what we call strange bedfellows. There are no stranger bedfellows on this beat than seeing the Tea Party and the Sierra Club together. It's like dogs and cats, like Romulans and Klingons, like Yankees and Red Sox fans. Debbie Dooley is, to me, one of the most interesting figures on the environment beat this year. She heads the Atlanta Tea Party Patriots. They're one of the Tea Party groups here in Georgia. And she's uh, formed an alliance with the Georgia Sierra Club. They call it the Green Tea Party. 
What they're doing is challenging the huge utility in these parts, Southern Company and Georgia Power, which is their subsidiary here in Georgia, saying that they are uncompetitive and resisting uh, using or investing in solar power while they're running almost a billion-dollar deficit and over budget on two new nuclear plants that they're building. Debbie Dooley recruited a public service commissioner here in Georgia named Bubba McDonald. Yes, it's an elected official named Bubba. And together they worked with uh, the Sierra Club and other groups and are on the brink of compelling Georgia Power to invest in solar energy. Is this happening anywhere else? And are there more solar Bubbas out there? Well, you know, Bubba's kind of a politically magic name here in Georgia, but if you're in Arizona, an even more magical name is Barry Goldwater in politics. And Barry Goldwater Jr., the son of the iconic conservative senator, according to Bloomberg News in a story this week, is helping to lead an effort in Arizona to get their utilities to drop a surcharge for carrying solar power, something that discourages the development of solar in Arizona. And finally, uh, this week, Peter, you have a special anniversary to mark for a very special hoax, I gather. We have an anniversary. Sixty years ago this week, scientists put the last nail in the coffin of what I think is the greatest scientific hoax ever, the Piltdown Man. The Piltdown Man? What's that? Back in 1912, there were some bones found in the UK near the Piltdown Golf Course in East Sussex. There was a media frenzy that followed that the missing link had been found archaeologically, anthropologically anthropologically, and the local press went kind of crazy on this because they were also a little bit glad that the missing link they found was British. The Piltdown Man became a phenomenon. You might call him a 500,000-year-old rock star. Now, these days, 500,000-year-old rock stars are a little bit more common in the UK, but it was a big deal back in the early part of the 20th century. (laughs) Forty years of this back and forth over the Piltdown Man and whether it was a real discovery happened, and it wasn't until 1953, 60 years ago this month, that it was revealed that some of the bones were were fixed. They were chemically treated to look like they were half a million years old, when actually they were only about a few hundred years old. So they exposed the hoax, but who did it and why? They were never able to figure out who the real hoaxer was. There were a couple of suspects. One of them was uh, one of the early scientists. Another one was a disgruntled employee at the British Natural History Museum. But it remains an open mystery. All we know is that it was a hoax, and a lot of people fell for it. Peter Dykstra of Environmental Health News and the Daily Climate. Thanks so much, Peter. Thanks, Steve. Coming up, the link between tropical and Arctic ice. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. The Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet, and Gilman Ordway for the coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Life for the famous polar bears of Churchill, Manitoba, can be a mix of feast and famine. When there is sea ice, the bears fatten up by catching ring seals that pop up to breathe in holes in the ice. But when summer melts the ice out of Hudson Bay, the seals are too fast to catch, and the bears mostly go hungry. And with ice taking longer to come back, these southernmost white bears are going hungry well into the fall, and a couple of recent attacks on people have experts concerned. Andrew Desrochers is a professor of polar bear biology at the University of Alberta, and he says the attacks have caught people off guard. 
It's an unusual event. We have to really go back several decades before we've actually had a fatality in Churchill. Fortunately, both the cases that have happened this year, nobody's been killed. It is unusual, though, to have people attacked in the town of Churchill itself. Well, describe these attacks for us. Uh, How many victims did you say? Three? We've had three people injured in two separate events. The the first one was an individual out late at night on his own, and uh, he was attacked right in front of the bakery. And this is the famous uh, cell phone case where he pulled out his cell phone, and I guess the flash sort of startled the bear, and it backed up, bumped into a planter, and then kind of ran away. Well, that bear is now in a zoo in Winnipeg, Manitoba, so that one wasn't shot. But the more recent event that occurred was a little more serious and there was a woman being attacked and another person came out uh, to assist and then he was attacked by this bear. And this uh, seemed like quite an aggressive situation and the information is still a bit sketchy. It ended up that two bears were shot. It seems that there was a case of a bear being in the wrong place at the wrong time. That was a mother that actually had a cub with her. She was shot. And then they did shoot a, it looks like a young male that was the bear responsible for the attack. And From all accounts that are going on right now, there are a lot of young, skinny males around in the Churchill area this year, which is a bit unusual. Usually we don't see that many bears in town. Well, we saw that this year Arctic ice retreated to, well, the sixth most extreme extent. That is, there have been worse years. But on the other hand, out of the last 30 or 40 years, this was the sixth worst one. How much does the lack of ice have to do with all this? Well, it's an interesting challenge because when we talk about the worst ice years, those are typically uh, measured in September. And that really affects bears further north more than it does the bears directly in the Hudson Bay ecosystem. Because the Hudson Bay system has been ice-free for as long as people have uh, known in the summertime. The challenge in the Hudson Bay system is more that what's happening is the general climatic warming is causing an earlier melt in the springtime and then a later freeze up in the autumn. So the challenge here is that bears are being pushed. We're now starting to cut into their feeding time in the spring out on the sea ice, and then we're making them go longer and longer on shore without uh, access to their food. So they can only bring so much fat ashore with them. And that's the real problem here is these bears are running out of energy. And of course, it doesn't matter where you live, if it's grizzly bear country or black bear country, you know when there's a food crop failure and the bears get hungry, they come around communities. It's the same process we've got in the Arctic with polar bears. So traditionally, how have humans and bears gotten along there in Churchill? You've been there for many, many decades. What's it like? It's it's a pretty nice uh, relationship. I mean, the, the polar bears come back and the tourists bring a lot of money with them when they come. Uh, there's a bit of an uneasy sort of uh, respect that goes on there. People in Churchill are pretty careful uh, around polar bears for the most part. Probably one of the, the big issues is that the polar bear alert program there has been incredibly successful. The government of Manitoba puts uh, amazing resources into keeping the bears away from town, but it's not a, a foolproof system, and some bears do get into town. And what a lot of uh, the polar bear scientists and managers have been saying is that there's a changing scenario going on and that the bears are not going to behave as they used to behave. In the years past, when these bears were fat and sassy coming off the ice and in good shape late into the fall, they had no interest in being around people and they were very wary of humans. Now, of course, as the bears are leaner, uh, they're starting to look for food resources. And we're seeing this right across the Arctic. It's not just in Churchill. It's in other communities like Resolute in the Canadian Arctic, parts of Alaska, Russia as well. It's everywhere. 
What does this mean for tourism in Churchill? Well, in the short term, the tourism industry is going to be quite vibrant. Uh, there's no question. There's a, a bit of this attitude of last chance to see that's going on. So if people want to see polar bears relatively inexpensively, Churchill is still by far the best place to go. Um, I was talking to people there this morning. There's lots of bears around. They seem to be doing quite well. But that population, from all indications, is on a pretty steady decline. And longer term, it's not going to be there. So people want to see bears are going to have to go further and further north over time. How long do you think that the tourism industry has for bears there in Churchill? Well, you know, that's the challenge here. And one of the concerns we have is it would only take one very bad year, sort of very early melt and a very late freeze up to see a a major decline. And, And some of the energetics modeling we've done on the bears suggests that we could see easily a decline of 50% in a single year. By all accounts, it, it could be next year, it could be the year after, it could be 10 years away. It's, it's really hard to predict. There's a lot of noise in Arctic sea ice systems, and the bears respond directly to the sea ice. So, Professor, overall, how are polar bears uh, faring throughout the world? Well, you know, we've got 19 different populations in the circumpolar Arctic, and some of them are doing just fine. We've got uh, recent inventory information from the population that's north of Hudson Bay, an area called Fox Basin, that indicates that that population is quite stable. Nonetheless, in that area, we're seeing changes in sea ice, and we think that we're on the cusp of changes in the next population north. But if you go to the other populations around the Arctic, Some of them are going to be doing very well for many decades to come, and some areas may actually see some improvement in habitat. We haven't noted that anywhere yet, but it's still conceivable to happen. The concern is that uh, climate change is going to mean different scenarios in all of these 19 different populations. So the ones that are seriously in trouble right now are the southern Beaufort Sea off of Canada and Alaska. The western Hudson Bay is in dire straits right now. And we've got serious concerns about other ones, uh, Davis Strait population off of uh, Labrador and Newfoundland. And so it just depends on where you look. But collectively, it's not good for the bears. Andrew Derochet is a professor of polar bear biology at the University of Alberta. Thank you so much, Andrew. It's been my pleasure. Thank you very much. Melting ice isn't only a problem up in the Arctic. Glaciers are quickly melting in mountains in the tropics. And a case in point is the one-time skiing tourist destination in the Andes in Peru called the Pastoruri Glacier. Beatra Taj is a correspondent for Reuters and a former producer and reporter for Living on Earth. We reached her in Lima, Peru, where the government is working on a novel plan to address tourism in the face of the rapid retreat of the glacier and the prospect of its disappearance within a few years. The pictures that you see in the nearby city of Juarez, in hotel rooms, and hotel lobbies, and restaurants, you see this, this big glacier and there's people all over it, skiing, climbing, having a good time. Uh, you don't see that anymore. You mostly see a, a big block of ice and a lot of exposed rock around it, so, so black rock that, um, that used to be covered completely in snow and ice. So how has the melting glacier affected the regions around it? How's tourism doing? Pastoruri was the big tourist attraction for a long time. It, it drew a lot of Peruvians from Lima and nearby cities and towns because it's just a day away and, and you, can, you can have fun with your kids. And So now that it's no longer really drawing people because it doesn't look the way it used to look and you're not allowed to climb on top of it and stuff like that, the number of visitors has dropped pretty dramatically from about 100,000 per year to just 
30,000 last year. So I gather the plan is to figure out another way to get tourists there by making it a climate change tourism destination. What's going on with that so far? I think they're targeting tourists that are interested in, in things like science and climate change and also people that want to see something that might not be around that much longer. And you, you'll hear them talk about what it used to look like. You know, this used to be uh, an international skiing destination. We used to have international ski competitions here. You used to see children running along and, and building snowmen. And you contrast that with, with what you see now and, and the changes that are, are happening as a result of the glacier melt. And it's unique, I think, in, in terms of travel destinations. Now, other than being a tourist destination, I'm sure the glaciers are also an important source of water for local people. How are they being affected by this rapid melting? That's an interesting topic. I don't think there's been any very serious studies done on it yet, but um, as the water is melting off, it's taking minerals with it that used to be buried in snow and ice and sort of frozen into place. And that's more and more a concern. It, it, there's levels of heavy metals that are, are unsafe for drinking. The local water company that provides water to the city of Huaraz actually had to change the river that it gets its water from because levels of metals were, were so high that it wasn't really safe for drinking. Pastor Ruri, a glacier isn't the only one melting in the Andes. This is a region-wide phenomenon, I would imagine. Yeah, um, Pastoruri is in the National Park of Huascaran, which has, I think, about 700 or something glaciers, and, and they're all melting very quickly. Um, in the past few decades, in total, in the Peruvian Andes, glaciers have melted to about 30 to 50 percent of their previous size. It's happening really quickly. The tropical glaciers are some of the most sensitive formations to global warming, which is why it's easy to watch them and, and see what what's actually happening. I mean, they, they reflect the global temperature rise really well. What do you think the average person living in this area thinks about this melting glacier in terms of climate change? They make the association? Oh, yeah. You can ask anybody that lives in these towns near the glaciers, and I think it's, it's very clear that it's climate change. They can talk to you about what it used to look like, about how it's much brighter now, the sun shines harder. I don't think there's any doubt in their mind that climate change is, is driving this. Mitra Taj is a correspondent for Reuters. Thanks so much for taking the time today, Mitra. Thank you, Steve. When glaciers reach the sea, they release icebergs. And for many, they're both fascinating and dangerous. Writer Mark Seth Lender encountered his first icebergs off Greenland aboard ship with Adventure Canada. He was impressed by their unexpected beauty and scale, and that's something special deep inside that few people have ever seen, or rather heard. In the channeled quiet of dawn, at the first thin edge of antimeridian, at latitudes dark this time of year, not far from the place they were born, under skies so clear, on a sea like mercury, icebergs. Eons of snow, crushed by its own weight, is their point of conception. In embryo, a slow, flowing river of ice, white from above, blue within, hard as the ancient granite shield wearing away beneath. 
Towards the sea the ice river goes, drawn by an irresistible force. There, at a shore of her own making, Ilulisat Glacier lies down to give them birth, sons and daughters made of ice. Within the narrows of the fjord they abide, then stroll at a casual pace out into Disco Bay. Wind and current carries Ilulisat's children on and on, too distant now to hear the water breaking, the crashing, the waves thrashing in the moment they came into the world. Having drifted away, they will never be back. By glacier, whole ranges of mountains return to sand and dust. Peaks are worn down into valleys, the valleys scoured by a torrent roaring beneath the ice. The watercourses and the bays are drowned in silt. The land is transformed, unrecognizable. Just so, by sunlight, by salt, mountains of ice waste away. Icebergs too large to measure at human scale are carved and scalloped in the brilliance of the Arctic sun and on the waterline weathered by currents and by tides. Edges undercut, the balance of above and below becomes untenable with no warning. Icebergs pitch pole, like great ships in a following sea, or like ocean liners roll over on their sides. Tumbling like foundering galleons, their final treasure is then revealed. Sequestered within the tiny crystalline flakes of snow, there was air, trapped as snow became ice. Now, in a sudden underwater rush, like the gush of champagne into the narrow glass, ancient atmosphere blind to all things for 10,000 years sings, suddenly escaping. It is the last long gasp of an iceberg, returning its breath to the world, a shimmering, bubbling froth, breaking. Along with the breath, the remnant of the body and the blood also depart. Ringlets and driplets chime the surface. Thermoclines in sinewy patterns spread underneath. The music and the form of icebergs vanishing. Ocean was the source, and to the source they have returned. To check out some photographs Mark Seth Lender took of icebergs from just a few meters away, drift on over to our website, LOE.org. Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Bascom, Emma Fitzgerald, Andrew Keyes, Helen Palmer, Catherine Rodway, Adelaide Chen, James Kerwood, Jennifer Marquis, and Gabriella Romano all helped to make our show. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Learish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org and like us on our Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth. And we tweet from at Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. 
the Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet, and Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. Living on Earth is also supported by a friend of the nation, where you can read such environmental writers as Wen Stevenson, Bill McKibben, Mark Hertzgard, and others at thenation.com. This is PRI, Public Radio International. PRI, Public Radio International.